You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. Well, happy 4th of July weekend. Happy Connect Canada Day. Is that better? Yeah. 150 years. This is the sesquicentennial of Canada. How weird is that? Okay. Daniel. How many sermons have we done on Daniel? 150. Only three more to go. <laughs> That's been an amazing book as we've dug through it. It really is. And we're in Daniel 11 today. So haul out your phone or open your Bible as we look along here. We're, we're going to call this sermon The Last Battle. As you remember last week, if you're here, Jay opened it up by looking at chapter 10, which is the beginning. It's a three-chapter, really one story in three chapters. And that's the spot where the angel shows up to Daniel, who's been praying to understand this vision he got in chapter 9. And when the angel comes, he apologizes. Remember what he apologizes for? He got hung up by the prince of Greece. This super powerful angel gets hung up in some sort of cosmic warfare with the the prince of Persia, and it takes him three weeks to get free, and only when Michael, the archangel, comes and helps him. How weird is that? So if you're doing a last battle that hangs up powerful angels, you need some really powerful reinforcements like this. That's Samantha, Sensei Samantha, my daughter-in-law, Sensei Nicole, my 60 year old granddaughter, and soon-to-be Sensei Nicole, all three black belts. We pity the boys that chase those two girls. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're amazing. So they're here. David was here in first service. And Nicole, 16, is headed off to Europe tomorrow with the Oregon Ambassadors of Music honor band, 150 band members and 150 choir members headed off to do music all over Europe, starting in London, Paris, I mean, how can I go, is everybody's question. It's just great. So we're talking about this last battle. And in Daniel chapter 11, well, it's right at the end of Daniel chapter 10, we have to do to get this picked up. So he said, the angel, do you know why I've come to you? Soon I'll return against the prince of Persia, and when I go, the prince of Greece will come. But first, I must tell you what's written in the book of truth. Well, the book of truth is what he's going to explain in this next section. Now then, he says, I tell you the truth. This is 11.2. Three more kings will rise in Persia, and then a fourth who will be far richer than all the others. And when he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everybody against the kingdom of Greece. Well, that fourth king there is Xerxes. I mean, these, all these dates, by the way, are B.C. I didn't put them in all of them. And you see, he's a, a great king, talked about by Daniel, like 100 years before it happens. But he goes on. Then a mighty king, who's that? Who will rise, who will rise with great power and do as he pleases, after he's written his Empire will be broken up and parceled among the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it go to the powers he exercised, because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. Well, that great king is Alexander the Great. Foretold by Daniel more than 200 years in advance. 
The king of the south will become strong. Who's that? Bonius' commanders will become even stronger than he will rule his own kingdom with great power. After some years they will become allies. The daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to make alliance, but she will not retain her power, and he and his power will last, and the day she will be betrayed together. Anyway, there it goes. What are you looking at? The king of the south? Well, that's Ptolemy the one. King of Egypt, after Alexander. The king of the north? Well, that's Seleucus. In Syria, really, in Mesopotamia. And you follow this through, and what we're getting from Daniel here is a look ahead at hundreds of years of history written by him in 538 and thereafter as an old man. Well, let's look at it on a timeline. Some of this historical stuff is helpful. I, I'm going to put a lot of stuff up here. You can download the PowerPoint. Those of you who are listening, trying to make sense of this on audio uh, from our podcast, my apologies. Look at the PowerPoint. Yeah. So the whole thing began back. Remember Abraham? Heard of him? Yeah. At the same time, you get the Assyrian kingdom starting up. And the time Abraham's doing his thing, a great, well, after that a bit, Hammurabi. Did you study him in school? The law code guy? He's Assyrian. He was a great part of ancient Syria. Assyria, and as he's doing his thing, about 1725, where are the Israelis? Israelite people are in Egypt under Pharaoh. And then the Assyrian kingdom lasts about 300 years, and the Babylonians come up. Now, Babylon had been a city for a long time, but it becomes a great power, and it's the paradigm of evil kingdom in Bible. If you want to insult somebody, call them Babylon. And that's actually what John does, I think, in the book of Revelation, calling Jerusalem Babylon. Some people think he's talking about Rome. I think he's probably talking about Jerusalem. Whatever, it's an insult. Babylon is the one that takes the Jews into captivity in 586 B.C. Daniel was the first wave in 605 B.C. Cyrus, the great. Persian. He defeats the Medo, it was Medo-Persian, he defeats the Medes, and in 539 he defeats Babylon, that's Daniel chapter 5, and wipes the place out, takes over. This kingdom lasted about, the Babylonian kingdom lasted for all its power, lasted about 80 years, about the same time as the Soviet Union of last century. Super powerful, catastrophic end. And then you have the Persian Empire, which is bigger and even more powerful under Cyrus and the four kings. Remember those? Well, Xerxes is the one that's mentioned in Scripture. Super powerful, super wealthy, great general who astonishingly lost to the Greeks at Salamis in 480. Who would have thought? How could a bunch of Greek rebels beat this super powerful army, it's craziness. But it happened. They withdrew a bit in disarray and a guy named Alexander. Did you study him in school? Now he's mentioned here as the lightning king. And he comes and in just a matter of about 10 years he conquers the entire world. Persia in 333. I mean, it's incredible power and quickness, lightning that he does, 
and he conquers Persia. And you have the Greek kingdom under Alexander, but 10 years later, Alexander dies. He's got a little kid, but way, way too young to be the emperor. Incredible power. Gone. Civil war breaks out in the power vacuum of his huge kingdom. And it's divided among four generals, just like Daniel says. And those generals rule different areas, and they consolidate around 300 around there. This is Alexander's kingdom. And you can get a picture, you look at the map, how big that is, way, way over. Now Babylon, what's modern-day Babylon? What country? That's Iraq. Modern-day Persia is what? Iran. They're still at war with each other. Nothing has changed. Arab Iraq versus Persian Iran. Still at war. Alexander conquered them all. And Egypt and all in between coming from Macedonia, where his father Philip was the king of this little region of what we call Greece today. Tootled or taught by Aristotle. I mean, he had everything going for him. Conquered the world. Incredible general. Dead. And he's king. Well, there's Israel. Little bitty insignificant place, but not so insignificant. This is the way the kingdom looks a ways into the four kingdoms. Down here you have the Ptolemaic around Egypt. King is down there. And up further to the north you have the Seleucid Empire, king area in Syria, but extending way over into Iran and Iraq. And again, Israel, tiny little place on the coast, insignificant. In the wrestling back and forth between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, five changes of who's in charge in Israel. Can you imagine how distressing it is to switch back and forth between empires and systems? Throwing up, I mean, it's total confusion. New power comes up, Rome. Develops in 146, Rome comes in and conquers Corinth and just wipes it out. And that's the end of the Greek kingdom. That's the end of the Greek empire. It falls apart and we now have the Roman empire. How long did the Persian Empire last? About the same time frame as the United States so far. How long was the Greek Empire, including the four-part distributed kingdom? Again, about that same time, about the same time as the United States. Kings come, kings go. Rome? Well, they started, they went for about 500 years, maybe a little bit longer than that. But the history that counts is a different one. It's the history of Jewish folk. Cyrus, 538, one year after he became the emperor of Persia. Remember what he did? He sent the Jews home. They had been deported to Babylon, the city. He said, go back to Israel. Build your temple. A little later, build your walls. And they went back and formed a kingdom, but always a vassal state of Persia. Always paying tribute, always under Persian domination, but with a relative freedom because they're not all that big a deal. The Greek kingdoms, Alexander comes through and sets up the four-part, and now you've got this switching back and forth. Remember I said five times between the Egyptian crowd and the Syrian crowd? It's like if you're Costa Rica, and you're going back and forth between having the United States be the sovereign nation in your area, and then the war comes up in the Soviet Union. 
And some of the African countries had some of that same kind of thing happen. Totally disoriented because your whole system comes apart. But they maintained, and during this time, you have the development of the high priest because a relative freedom of religion, sometimes more than others. The canon of scripture was formed, Old Testament canon, became an authoritative book. Time of scholarship, ironically, the scholarship was still in Babylon, the city. How ironic is that? Anarchist Epiphanes, evil guy. We'll look at him a little bit more in a minute. He's Seleucid, he's from Syria, he's from the north. And he takes over, he's only there for just a short time. He starts off in Syria about 175 and gains power by deceit and just opportunism, cunning. And in 167, he is made to foray into Egypt and is defeated there. The Roman leader says, go home. He said, let me think about it. The Roman leader took his walking stick and drew a circle around him in the sand. Do not leave this sand until you make your decision. I mean, this is absolute in-your-face power. Antiochus read the tea leaves correctly and went home. Not a good day. Not a good day. Because when he got home, he went through Palestine, Israel, and just blew the place up. We'll look at more of that in a minute. And a man named Judas, came to be known as Judas the Maccabee, Judas the Hammer, led the Maccabean Revolt in 167 B.C. against some of the things that Antiochus did. And this little rebel group of terrorists, or freedom fighters, depending on your perspective, were able to defeat the huge Greek army coming back from Egypt. And they cleansed the temple and reconsecrated it after the terrible profaning that had been done by Antiochus. And by 160, there was a relatively free Israel, still around, Rome was around and all that, but relatively free worship of religion. Pompey, the Roman general, you know, the city named after him. We know it because Vesuvius erupted. You can go to Anzi and see the, the stuff from Pompeii, the city named after this great general who became an emperor in Rome for a few years before he was defeated in battle and revolt happened against him and he ended up running away to Egypt where he was assassinated, the way of emperors, it seems. But he dominated, besieged Jerusalem, and put it totally and completely under Roman rule. Installed a little bit later a guy named Herod. Remember him? Herod the Great? He's the guy who was around when Jesus was born. The one to kill Jesus, to protect the peace. What we see in here, what we see in here, is that human rulers and empires seek power. There is an addictive, I don't know what it is. Power is just so, so to be sought after. 
The whole Lord of the Rings cycle is about Sauron and the ring of power. And that's what we see coming back and forth. They seek power by cunning, by force. But in the end, it accomplishes nothing. Dynasties come, dynasties go. Oh, while they're there, it's very real and very powerful. There's about 30 years when the Seleucids were in charge in Israel before Antioch's Epiphanies where they had a lot of freedom. They affirmed Jewish religious practices. But then in the 30 years, Antioch came in and said, no way, stop. Good days come, bad days come. Dominion is never stable. Still isn't. I'm old enough to remember the days of the USSR and the Cold War. There is no USSR. It's very interesting to me to watch them trying to put Russia back like the old USSR. And it's a shadow of what the USSR was. But the, they come and go. Antiochus, verse 21. Remember, this is Daniel prophesying a long time in advance. In those times, let's see, his successor will send a text, get the right one. He will be succeeded by a contemptible person who had not been given the honor of royalty. What happened is the rightful heir in the Seleucid Empire was in Rome and had actually been imprisoned. And Antiochus saw the opening and by subterfuge and cunning and deceit was able to get into the place of power and take place but was never declared king. He'll invade the kingdom when his people feel secure and he'll seize it through intrigue. That's exactly what happened. Then an overall army will be swept away before him both in it and a prince of the covenant will be destroyed. After coming to an agreement with him, he will act deceitfully and with only few people who rise to power. That's exactly what happened. Where Jesus' prophecies feel securely invade them, will achieve neither what his fathers or forefathers did. He will distribute plunder, loot, and wealth among his followers. He will plot the overthrow of fortresses, but only for a time. With a large army, he'll stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south. That's Egypt. The king of the south will wage war with a very powerful army, but he will not be able to stand because of the plots against him. This is 169 B.C., as it turns out. Those who eat from the king's provisions try to destroy him. His army will be swept away, and many will fall in battle. The two kings, <laughs> with their hearts bent on evil, will sit on the same table and lie to each other. Has anything changed? But to no avail, because an end will come at the appointed time. The king of the north... That's Antiochus, Epiphanes. Return to his own country with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the Holy Covenant. He will take action against it and return to his own country at the appointed time. Now, this is 167. He'll invade the south again, but his throat will be overcome. That's when the Roman general drew the circle around him. Ships of the western coastlands will post him. That's the Roman folk. And he'll lose heart. He'll turn back and vent his fury against the Holy Covenant. He return and show favor to those who forsake the, the Holy Covenant. And his armed forces will rise up and desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. What he's up doing? 
in the name of maintaining peace between the traditionalists who want to honor Torah and the compromisers who want to get along with the Greeks. That's what we see in the Bible is Pharisees and Sadducees, the traditionalists of the Pharisees, the liberal compromisers of the Sadducees. And to make peace between these two conflicting parties, he ends up totally squishing the worship of Yahweh in the temple. In the temple of Yahweh, he puts a statue of Zeus, his personal god, and says you have to worship that god, not the Yahweh god. And just to complete his abomination of desolation, just to complete this, he'll sacrifice a pig, the forbidden armor animal in the temple in worship of Zeus the demon god and then he puts idols of Zeus all over Israel and sacrifice pigs forces people to eat pork to violate them specifically That's what evil people do is they take on the way of God. What he does here, he strips Jews of their sacrament. The sacrament of the Jewish folk is what? Do you remember? Circumcision. Boys born Jewish or converts to Judaism are circumcised, males, as a mark that they belong to Yahweh, he totally stopped circumcision on pain of death, torture, or slavery. He took away their sacrifice, refused to allow the temple service to go on, which had been going on for hundreds of years. The morning sacrifice, the day of atonement, stopped all of it, forced them to sacrifice to Zeus. He took away their Sabbath. Sabbath worship is at the heart of Jerusalem. He forced them to work on Sabbath on pain of death or torture or worse. And he took away their scripture. Now, there weren't a lot of Torah scrolls in those days because they had to be hand copied and it took a long time to do it. He sought them out and burned them. To have a copy of scripture was a death penalty. Why? He's going to squish completely the worship of Yahweh, forcing people into apostasy. Not all do. Judas of Maccabee is the one who led the revolt against him. Unbelievably, he could win. He's a little about the American, what do you call them, freedom fighters, terrorists, whatever, 1776, who went against the British army, could not possibly win because the British army was in a mess with France, able to win like Judas Maccabee, except they're fighting in the name of God to restore the Torah and to cleanse the temple. In 165, they re-consecrated the temple and restored the sacrifice. Verse 36, now it talks about a different king. The king who does pleases to exalt and magnify himself above every god. 
That's not Antiochus, because he was always loyal to Zeus, his god. This is looking forward to another mega-beast. And this other mega-beast is even greater in his evil than Antiochus. And you see how it goes there. I'll let you read the passages. The thing that happens here, this is the very last verse of the chapter, he'll pitch his royal tents between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain, yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. This greatest of all mega-beasts, the one we call the Antichrist, a full-blown narcissist, and therefore atheist. I mean, a full narcissist, he can't even give, he can't give credence to anybody except himself. And he is the God. He is the God. One of the things that I've seen happen is the power that people seek and how high-functioning narcissists are able to move into pastoral positions in the church because they're really good at what they do. But the God that they serve is the God of self. And they do huge damage. Well, this guy is in his own church, if you will. This antichrist that's talked about in various places of scripture that we look forward to. But there are a lot of super mega beasts along the way. Titus is going to do it in 70 AD when he destroys the temple. Hitler did it this past century when he made every effort to destroy the Jewish people. And there will be more of them. Because they find, always find a scapegoat in the people of God. It's amazing how they'll look for particular worshipers of Yahweh to oppress it's an amazing thing. A little country like Israel become the focus of such hatred. Still true. The people of Yahweh still there. But even the final Antichrist will meet his end suddenly and no one, no one will help. That we believe is when Jesus comes back, Revelation 19. It's talked about here. And what we see, Daniel goes on in chapter 12, at that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of nations until then. We think that's the great tribulation, but there are tribulations along the way. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth, dead folk, will awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who will rise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who have been led, to, led many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. That's talking about the people who are faithful to Yahweh even in the time of terrible distress. But you, Daniel, roll up and seal the words of your scroll until the time of the end. Many will go there to increase the knowledge. That's why we're studying this book carefully, because we too live in distressing times. But we realize that there will be vindication in the resurrection. That's why we're faithful now. Now, here in the United States, we're not facing any significant persecution at all. The Lebanon team is in Lebanon. I've been following them on our Facebook page. You should, too. 
Ecuador team, they're okay, but Lebanon, I've been there. I have a place with that. <laughs> no, it's two teams are doing amazing stuff. Iskandar Luria was one of my students when I taught in Beirut. Tall African. Went back to Sudan as the rector of Khartoum, the Anglican rector in Khartoum. But it's Arab. They hate Africans. And when South Sudan became its own country, he was able to immigrate to South Sudan and became the Anglican rector there in Juba, South Sudan. But as you follow the news, you know that terrible war has broken out there. And I just found out this past week that Iskandar was killed in that war. This tall, dignified, godly African man left Mary, and I remember little Zama, she's not so little now, one of many stories. There'll be vindication in the resurrection, but hardness along the way. What do we live with this? How do we live with this? Well, one of the things is what it tells us here in Scripture is assess the significance based on God's perspective. One of my commitments is I will honor nothing that dishonors Jesus. I will not honor anything that dishonors Jesus. Yeah, amen. That's an assessment to be done. And it's, it's a, and I look in the news and I find things are not usually reported from a Christian perspective that, in fact, it kind of goes the other way sometimes. The front page of today's Parade magazine focuses on the family. The man was the MVP for the Chicago Cubs. I'm not enough of a sports fan to remember his name. Does it? What is it? Yep. Zobris. Yeah, there it is. Okay. Zobris. Thank you. I, I just need a friend. <laughs> he turns out to be a committed, deeply committed Christian who's looking forward to being a youth pastor when he finishes baseball career. He's studying now for that. His wife is one of the best Christian artists in the world today. Three kids. I mean, amazing, amazing, amazing. How many heard when they were lauding his expertise as a baseball player, heard that he's a committed Christian? Who's the best basketball player in the world? Yeah, well, there's a debate around that. Because we see two different ones. We see one who dishonors Jesus every possibility. And we see another, really two, Steph Curry and who's the other guy in San Francisco? Kevin Durant. Very strong, committed Christians. Watch their styles of play. You see very different styles of play. See, I'm going to honor the things that honor Jesus big time. I'm not going to honor anything that actively dishonors Jesus. So what Daniel does, he goes through 200 years of huge world history, one verse. He goes through 200 more years of huge world history, two verses. Why? No big deal. No big deal. But it is! Well, not from God's perspective. Give significance according to God's perspective. Now, we looked through this before, this Anarchist thing. And what I see as I look at this is he will act deceitfully. Okay, that's Anarchist. He will plot the overthrow of fortresses. But only for a time. See the contrast? Their hearts bent on evil, lying to each other. An end will come at the appointed time. See the contrast? 
his heart will be set against the Holy Covenant. At the appointed time, he'll invade the South. He will turn back and vent his fear against the Holy Covenant. Those who are wise will instruct many. Some of the wise will stumble. Until the end of time, for it will still come at the appointed time. Do you see the contrast? The king will do as he pleases. Until what's determined must take place. Do you see the contrast? All through here, we see this going on. People do what they please. And God is appointing and at work. How do you balance these two? It's one of the huge questions that people wrestle with. How do you balance these two? Well, there are three basic answers. A lot of overlap between them. One of them is God ordains all things, including evil, for his greater glory and our greater ultimate good. So everything that happens has a divine purpose behind it. doesn't mean he causes it. doesn't mean that he does it. But everything that happens, everything that's the evil that God hates is somehow a part of his plan and has a divine purpose behind it. So very good men, John Piper, Matt Chandler, come from this perspective as a fundamental story. Everything that happens has a divine purpose. Nothing against the decree of will of God happens. Everything is according to his plan, including the most horrific evil there is. A second type of view is God allows evil for the sake of his free loving relationship of his people. So what God is looking for is a absolutely powerful yes in relationship. I watch Bonnie scritch down here and greet some folk. Who are these folk you're greeting down here? Ohio. Like my Okay, Godchildren. This is good. Do you like this woman? Love. love. See, okay. Does that love mean a lot to Bonnie? Yeah, she took every opportunity to go down and give him hugs, all that kind of stuff. I mean, but see, the, the reason that love makes sense is because there's a possibility of a no. And without the possibility of a no, the yes is not really meaningful. And that's where the evil comes from, is people saying no to Yahweh. C.S. Lewis would be an example of this particular view. A third view, and the one that I opt for, remember, there's a lot of overlap, and is God is at war with evil. He's not ordaining it. Well, sometimes he does. Jerusalem against, taken by Babylonians. He's not allowing it. Well, sometimes he is. He allows Satan to afflict Job. But on the whole, he's at war with evil, Genesis 3.15. Working to overcome it with good until crushing it at the end. Now, three different views, and there's overlap again. This is not one's totally right, one's totally wrong, although I think the third one is the best fundamental paradigm. And your husband disagrees with me. The thing we're all going to say, and we talked after first service, God is loving enough and powerful enough to bring good out of the worst evil. So we all agree with that. Evil never, ever handcuffs of God or derails his plan. We all agree with that. Bobby, Asa, hit by a car, comatose. They tried to pull the ventilator. It didn't work. He may not survive. Godly, a high schooler, 
part of our community. I had supper with Pastor Mike Tuesday night. I was down at the Calvary Calvary Chapel Pastors Conference, and I was sitting around with some of the young pastors there, and when they had a chance to interview a seminary prof and ask questions, they grabbed me and sat me down. A couple of my students starting this fall. Pastor Mike was one of them. He's a pastor from Ireland. The next morning, he went out for a run before he came to do his workshop at the conference. Hit by a car going 40 miles an hour. Thrown 30 feet. No broken bones. No serious injuries. The doctor said, dude, you should be dead. I don't know how you got away from that. How do you make sense of Bobby Asa and Pastor Mike? How do you make sense of that? And the answer is, you don't. You don't. But the affirmation of faith is always this. God is loving enough and powerful enough to bring good out of the worst evil. And that we all say together as a confession of Jesus Christ. Worship team, why don't you drag back up here because we're going to do some songs. Our point here is we prepare for a long obedience in the same direction. We've been saying this and we'll say it again. You've seen a lot of this lately? The rage is the rage these days. Our point is in distressing times, stay calm. Remain faithful. Point to Jesus. Not to mean you're not aware of the evil that goes on. If you're Bobby's family or close to him, it's agony to go through. I was perfectly involved in your cancer because we're friends. Agony to think of my friend Bonnie with breast cancer, and at first they thought she might not survive. We're glad you're here. I bet you are too. And y'all, yeah. <laughs> but see, but the woman she talked about with pancreatic cancer died. Matt Chandler, brain cancer, survived. Two guys with him died. How do you make sense of this? Stay calm, remain faithful, point to Jesus. I'm going to preach on how the church should relate to distressing times. I'd love to get your suggestions. Gary at gracecc.net. I'm on vacuum cleaner mode right now, so send it along. I'm looking for ideas. See, that's what we're looking at here. Is this perspective? How do we live faithfully in distressing times? Part of what we do is come together as fellowship of God like we're doing here and sing the praise to God. And part of what we do, leaders, if you want to come forward as well, part of what we do is we have this simple meal. We call it communion to the Lord's table or Eucharist, the time of celebration. And in these simple elements, a bit of bread and a cup of juice representing what Jesus did to give us forgiveness and cleansing and hope and power, I invite you, if you'd like to have a meal with Jesus and his people, Come receive the elements, take them back to your chairs, and we'll celebrate the table together in a few minutes. Come forward and receive. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.